Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Colleen Moore and Alexis St. Juliana. Colleen manages a wide range of housing and community development projects on topics including disaster recovery, resilience, and effective HUD program planning and implementation. Alexis is a member of APP's Climate and Environment team, where she explores the nexus of climate change, environment, public health, and communication. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. As of this recording, it's been almost exactly four years since we've released our first podcast, which featured Colleen talking to us about housing and the need for resilience in response to climate change. But even as I was writing the intro to this podcast, I was starting by talking about blizzards in Texas and crazy hail in California, and then it became crazy snow in California, and then it became atmospheric rivers above California. The point being, this is an escalating problem. The good news is we're doing more work with HUD and climate change. Colleen, from your perspective, what's changed? Well, Eric, the last time we talked was in 2019, right? And we had had just completed uh, the Community Resilience Toolkit. And that was kind of a primer for communities on how they can evaluate their natural hazard risks and vulnerabilities and how they can think about resilience actions. So that work was originally prompted by a HUD rule that required communities to consider that in their planning. Um, That toolkit focused on like specific hazards such as sea level rise, wildfire, drought, inland flooding, uh, and then how communities might address them. And we included examples of how some communities had already done that uh, and what resources they used. But it was pretty high level information. So that's why I say it was kind of a primer. And then a couple of years ago in 2021, HUD asked us to kind of build on that work by developing some more um, step-by-step implementation guides. Um, And these, instead of focusing on the hazards, they focus on specific kinds of resilience activities um, that communities can take. And these are, you know, very specific, how they can create cool roofs, what kinds of nature-based solutions they can put in place, and uh, retrofit single-family housing. The idea was to give those HUD grantees, some more specific information that they could easily adapt or kind of plug into their actual situation. Um, We've also developed some videos that accompany most of those guides. And um, and again, they they include examples from real life communities that have implemented these things. Um, But these examples are, are quite a bit more detailed. Um, So it's, we've really kind of started to drill down from the initial work and, and getting down to kind of um, some really tangible, usable tools for communities. Great, thanks. Alexis, I know you've been talking to community leaders uh, for this second round of work. What have you learned? What have you been hearing? More and more communities are engaging in resilience activities. And so when we um, approached these implementation guides, um, as Colleen was saying, you know, we really wanted to find these real world experiences that were, you know, tangible and relatable that other communities could could kind of emulate. 
And so we did our research and we found some really terrific examples of communities that are doing resilience right now. You know, these aren't necessarily planning activities. These are communities that are actually kind of making these things happen. And so in each of the guides, which are nature-based solutions, cool roofs, single family retrofits, resilient public facilities, education and outreach, and community-driven relocation, which folks might know a little bit better as a concept called managed retreat. We, you know, really got the opportunity to talk to these communities and learn the ins and outs of, of what they're dealing with as they try to implement resilience actions in their communities. Great. And you want to talk a little bit more about, about what you have learned talking to those communities? That's, that's great that we're getting to the practical aspect of it. Yeah, and I think um, a good way to talk about this is to actually talk about a couple specific examples of, um, you know, that we explored as part of developing these implementation guides. Um, and I'll add, you know, I'm going to highlight two examples here, but we are just incredibly thankful to all the communities that participated in um, the case studies for the guides and the recorded presentations. They're just really wonderful insights. Um, but we tried to pick a really wide swath of kind of geography and implementers, whether that be states or local governments or community-based organizations, and also the actions and hazards that they're dealing with. So um, one of them um, that's featured in the Nature-Based Solutions Guide um, is by a community-based organization called Our City Forests, and they implement a program called Lawn Busters in Santa Clara County, California. And as you can imagine, California is very hot and dry, so they're dealing with drought conditions. And what um, Lawn Busters does, um, they partner with the local water district to convert turf grass lawns, which are very heavy water users, right, um, to sustainable landscaping. What that really involves is putting down kind of climate appropriate vegetation. And this program is available to veterans, older adults, low-income community members, and those with disabilities. And they've just had incredible demand. Um, I think their waiting list is something like two years long to be part of this program. And because of that demand, um, uh, our city forest is now offering a, a do-it-yourself model so that other community members can um, kind of reap the benefits of this program. And so that's like what we want to see, right? We want to see resilience just kind of proliferate throughout the community and other people to kind of uptake and implement these actions. Yeah, Alexis, if I could ask real quick, when you say it's available to, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Like what's the, what are the guidelines and, and what is being made available for that matter? Yeah, so um, they have some criteria that they use to identify eligible community members. Um, and like I said, it's, you know, um, you know, people that have served in, in the armed forces, older adults, folks that are low income and those with um, disabilities. So they're um, they're kind of the core focus of this Lawn Busters program. But the other really great thing about this program I wanted to mention is their use of AmeriCorps service members. Um, so this is, you know, kind of thinking creatively using multiple funding sources to get what they you know, to implement this program. So in addition to the support from the water district, they've, um, you know, they've accessed AmeriCorps service members. Um, I was an AmeriCorps service member for two years, so I always want to play up that angle sure. and um, uh, to really get this done and make the program successful. You know, I don't think that uh, Lawn Busters is actually using any HUD funding. 
And, you know, the examples that we've featured in the guides don't all necessarily use um, HUD funding to, to complete the work. But the idea was that these examples could be eligible because of what the actions are and how they relate to making the activities eligible. And so we're talking about funding to help these communities you just mentioned, um, help them implement these programs. And these are, at least to an extent, environmental justice communities, right? Colleen, it looks like you want to you want to set me straight there or clarify? Yeah, that's no, that's right. Um, you know, one of the things we focused on in the original toolkit was kind of encouraging communities, especially more vulnerable communities, um, to to use some of their resources in in new ways and to look beyond their traditional resources to kind of you know undertake these resilience actions and address those risks. So I think what Alexis just described is um, an example of that, right? Where AmeriCorps is another, actually is another federal resource. In fact, it's funded by the federal government and, and it it funds um, people to come in and, and help with those kinds of activities. Um, the HUD resources, um, and we did look at that quite a bit, um, the HUD resources, they, they must primarily benefit low and moderate income communities. Um, but, you know, those are some of the same communities that are, you know, usually disproportionately impacted by these right. kinds of risks and climate change in general. We tried to make the connection between some of these activities and the HUD resources that would be available, but also, you know, look a bit more broadly about other, you know, what, the, what other resources are out there. Right. Okay, great. Thanks. And thanks for clarifying that. And so, Alexis, I know you had at least at least another example you wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think, you know, the Lawn Busters program that I just talked about, that is something that feels really accessible that other communities can definitely, you know, relate to and, and hopefully um, feel like they could implement something similar in their communities. Another really great example of that is um, a program out of San Antonio, Texas called Under One Roof. And, um, you know, just like uh, California is hot and dry, um, San Antonio is also a very hot environment. And so the Under One Roof program um, is operated by the city and they work with eligible homeowners to replace conventional roofs with cool roofs. And so um, by replacing these roofing materials, um, they help to reduce the temperatures inside the home, they lower energy use, yep. and they reduce the local heat island effect. And um, that program has been immensely successful. It's been operating for several years, and they've replaced several hundred roofs for low-income homeowners in the community. Um, so again, that's just another example of a program that you know, it feels really accessible that we think, you know, other communities could look to as models and use as inspiration on their kind of resilience journey, whatever that might look like. When you say um, immensely successful, obviously the, the quantity is great. Do we have a sense of what the actual impact is? Do we have any numbers on that? So when they first started the program, they worked with, I believe, the University of Texas in San Antonio, and there some researchers did like an academic study, and they actually, you know, looked at several of the households and measured the temperature in the roofs and kind of the difference between, you know, before and after they implemented these. And there was a measurable difference, um, you know, tens of degrees after they implemented that. So that, you know, would 
directly um, reduce the temperature in the home, kind of making it just more comfortable generally. And then ideally they would not have to be running the air conditioner, you know, quite as much. And, you know, would be also contributing less greenhouse gas emissions. So it would really be have, you know, multiple benefits. It would both be adaptation to climate change and mitigation to climate change. Right. Great. Th thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, Colleen? Yeah, there were several other examples. I mean, those are, I think those are both great examples, but, you know, on that topic of kind of reducing extreme temperatures or, or reducing like a, a urban heat island effect, you know, there's, there were several examples in, in different parts of the country that we looked at. I mean, New York City has a very large cool roofs program, and then it's another program in, in Louisville, Kentucky, that, um, that aims to kind of reduce the urban heat island effect there. They found that like a tremendous difference in temperature between neighborhoods. So, um, you know, so I think that's a that's a very um, adaptable kind of strategy for communities to to um, to use. Um, you know, these these examples uh, are, you know, they they kind of vary in complexity, you know, something like cool roofs um, or the, the under one roof program in San Antonio is, you know, it's a straightforward solution, right? You change the, the nature of the roofing materials and that changes, it has an impact on the on lowering the temperature. Um, but there's, you know, the, the examples that we looked at, they really, you know, they vary in complexity. And I would say probably the most complex topic that we that we dealt with, and, and Alexis really knows much more about this is um, is she referred to earlier community driven relocation yeah. um, and sometimes called I think managed retreat right Alexis yep that's correct so Alexis why don't you tell us what that entails yeah absolutely so the final guide that we put together was on community driven relocation and. This really applies to communities that are um, dealing with the most severe and kind of immediate impacts of climate change. And as I mentioned earlier, most folks might be familiar with this concept as managed retreat. And um, even more recently, some sometimes it's referred to as climate migration. And um, HUD really wanted to be crystal clear that community is kind of at the center of the process. So that's why we ended up calling this guide um, community-driven relocation. But what we're really talking about are kind of gut-wrenching instances where communities collectively decide that, you know, the land that they're on is really no longer habitable. Um, they're, you know, experiencing repetitive losses or increasingly hazardous conditions, and they determine that they need to relocate. Um, and community-driven relocation really focuses on um, moving the community as a whole. So not just, you know, one house or a couple houses, but really the community banding together and deciding that this is something that, you know, they wanna do and they want to, to find a whole new site. And so by necessity, this guide is a little bit more detailed than the other guides. You know, yeah. we talk a little bit more about, um, you know, other federal funding sources. Um, the case studies in these are a little bit longer than what you'll see in the other guides. And there's also a little bit more discussion on kind of the, the mechanisms and processes and kind of the enabling conditions that would get you to the point of relocation. And so we talked to contacts familiar with three experiences with uh, this relocation. One is in Newtalk, Alaska. 
Another was in Ile de Jean Charles, Louisiana, and then the other was New Jersey State. And um, these all actually used HUD funding in some shape or form. Um, and actually, I think HUD was a really pivotal pivotal player in in all three of them. Um, and uh, without getting into too much detail, I'll just say that. Um, these communities should really be commended for their problem solving and kind of wherewithal. As you can imagine, it's a very long process. Um, there's some really steep challenges. There's a lot of learning along the way. And um, after all of that, um, uh, New Talk and Alves John Charles are both at the juncture of community members actually moving to the new community sites. So I think that's a really positive and hopeful development, you know, not just for these communities, but for all the other communities that can learn from them and their experience. So it's certainly not an easy process, but um, hopefully, you know, their experiences can inform others. I, I do get a little bit more detail because I'm wondering what does that entail? You know, are they are they building elsewhere? Are they are they just finding homes that are vacant elsewhere? Like, how does this work? How, how do you characterize what this entails broadly? Yeah, and so there's a couple different models that 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 they use for relocation, and I think the New Jersey model is a little bit more of I think what what you're maybe thinking of, Eric, and um, in New Jersey that's more of a buyout program. So. You know, New Jersey, they agree to to acquire the property and then the homeowners are kind of on their own to to relocate wherever they choose, you know, with, um, you know, however they've been compensated for for their property. In the New Talk and Aldejan Charles examples, they relocated as a community. So they actually both found completely new undeveloped sites to build a new town site. And so um, both of them actually, when we spoke with them, mentioned the importance of kind of land trusts and how long it actually took them to acquire the land and property rights for the new site. And so um, they both emphasized that that was just the longest and hardest part of, um, of their process, that that took a lot longer than they both thought it would. Thank you. So, you know, I get, I get this is a happy ending to what's kind of a catastrophic scenario, right? You have to pick up and leave your home. This is not going to be the last time someone has to do this, so it's great that we have this guide to help people. But looking forward, you know, obviously the goal is resilience and, ad and adaptation, right? Um, so what do the two of you hope to see, you know, as we continue working in this space? You know, what's next? Well, I think there's a few things, right? I mean, first of all, you know, certainly there are, there are many more examples than we've already identified in many other ways that communities have found to um, to kind of address some of the challenges that we've already looked at. So there's there's certainly more out there. And I think every day as as resilience becomes, you know, uh, such a a clear you know, necessity for many communities that they're, you know, they're, they're getting more creative about this. So finding some of those, I think is, is something else. Um, the other thing, uh, one other thing, which uh, I think has become increasingly important over the time that we've been working on this is uh, equitable community engagement and, and, and environmental justice, right? The, the administration um, issued an executive order on environmental justice, I think soon after the, this administration started. And so that's something that all of the departments um, are concerned about. And then, you know, Alexis, when she was talking about community-driven relocation mentioned at the beginning that 
HUD really wanted to be clear that the community was at the center of this process. And I think that's something that is being emphasized more and more across the board. I mean, this is probably the most extreme example, but in other examples where, you know, communities are just looking at maybe, you know, less comprehensive resilience actions, they still are looking for that, um, for that not only community input, but really community engagement. And, you know, in the case of HUD programs, that really needs to involve the communities that they are um, mandated to serve, which are, oft, as I said, often vulnerable, low and moderate income communities. Um, so those are, you know, those are a couple of things. Um, the other thing, you know, we're we're in the process right now of of expanding this work uh, to cover some other areas that we really haven't looked as much at yet, um, and those are primarily around resilient infrastructure and kind of transportation options, which may include, you know, green forms of transportation. Mm. Um, recently, HUD entered into an M uh, a memorandum of understanding uh, on decarbonization. Um, that was with the Department of Transportation and with the EPA. And, and so between that, and then there's a lot of focus right now across the country on infrastructure because of the recent federal infrastructure bill and, and because of the fact that we, we should focus on that as well. Um, so we're gonna be, um, you know, we're gonna be working a, a bit more with HUD on some of those issues. Um, and then we'll have some other work that relates specifically to the to the infrastructure grantees. And, and we hope to kind of connect this so that their work as they move forward with these infrastructure grants that may be coming out of a different department will be thinking about resilience and uh, making sure that as they as they build or replace that infrastructure, they're doing that in in a way that promotes as much resilience as possible. Yeah, that's great. And I think you're, you're referring to thriving communities as at least one of those programs, right? That we're working and we're we're available to help communities figure out how to ensure housing and transportation coexist uh, successfully for low and middle income communities, and successfully includes in terms of the environmental impact, right? So yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and you know, we're hoping that, you know, we're, we are even before that, we're going to move forward with some of this continued implementation work. And we're hoping that that's going to be, you know, that, that's going to be logically connected to that thriving communities work, you know, that as we, because we'll be identifying some communities that are already doing some of this work um, and, and giving, you know, hopefully providing some good uh, examples and models for for communities that that haven't really looked at this yet, but will be getting uh, funding under the infrastructure bill. Um, so, Eric, the other thing I wanted to kind of circle back to that you mentioned earlier, and you asked about this for the San Antonio example, is um, kind of where are they now? Do we have any, you know? assessment on their progress and, and where they stand today and, you know, maybe what that means in more, you know, quantifiable terms. And I did just want to note that each of the guides, one of the, the steps, the final step is, you know, measuring success and promoting, um, you know, where they are and kind of their, you know, resilience uh, uh, continuum. And uh, so that's something that we thought about in the guide and that I think as more and more communities start to engage in resilience actions, we might be able to get um, more of that, you know, kind of data that we're looking for, um, you know, as folks move into implementation of resilience. And I think the one thing that 
one of the things, one of the many things we learned in doing these implementation guides is that um, while we want quantifiable measures, um, we also need to be thinking about um, kind of social and kind of human metrics that we need to track in terms of kind of people's acceptance with resilience processes and, you know, any other kind of community goals that might be part of that that aren't quite as uh, uh, driven by numbers, but more about community sentiment and acceptance. All right. Well, you know, here at AFT, we love quantitative and qualitative data. So that <laughs> <Right. laughs> you are speaking our language, right? So, so we'll look forward to both sets um, as as the two of you pursue your work. You know, I, I obviously I start with doom and gloom because it's hard not to when you're talking about the impacts of climate change. But it's great that we're able to say we're starting to connect these dots uh, with you know housing and infrastructure and the environment and transportation. So uh, thank you for letting us end on an up note. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect.